Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. We live in the information age, yet many people avoid information, choose not to have access to something which is right there. Why is that? Is it because there are too many channels of information? Is it a trust issue? Are we overwhelmed? This is Under the Cortex. I am Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with the Association for Psychological Science. To speak about this study that analyzed the basics of information avoidance and the cognitive mechanisms behind it, I have with me Jeremy Faust from Kent State University, co-author of an article recently published in Perspectives on Psychological Science. Jeremy, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thank you so much for having me. I want to dive into my questions right away. Your paper is very interesting. So your research explores why people avoid using information. How did you first get interested in this topic? Yeah, when I first started my PhD program, my advisor was working on a project about avoiding information about prediabetes. And so I just started working on that project as well. And it kind of just took off from there. I realized that I enjoyed reading about and learning about information avoidance. But personally, I think I was invested because I could so easily think about times in which I avoided information. And so this research quickly became me search. And I was learning about all of these reasons that other people are avoiding information and was kind of comparing and contrasting it with my own experiences. So it started off as just this opportunity and then became something that I became kind of personally invested in, but also really interested by. Uh huh. Yeah, as you say, we all do it time to time. I think we are all guilty of it. And one thing I like about uh, your article is uh, you start uh, your article with different definitions of information avoidance. Can we go over that a little bit? So what are the different definitions? Yeah. Um, information avoidance is this general construct seems really straightforward. It's when a person chooses not to learn information. And probably the most common of the definitions was offered by Sweeney and colleagues in 2010 in their review of information avoidance. And they defined it as any behavior that prevents or delays the acquisition of available but potentially unwanted information. And yeah, it seems straightforward, but as we thought more about it in our paper, we struggled to think about what counts as avoidance. So does oversleeping and missing the morning TV news count as avoiding information? What about when someone doesn't pay attention to something because they feel that the information doesn't directly affect them? And so in working through this paper, we had to come up with a clear, kind of operational definition and and wanted to offer some considerations when people are investigating information avoidance. Uh, So we talked about four different considerations. First, that information avoidance is different than information not seeking. So just this general lack of interest stopping a person from continuously seeking information is different than this active avoiding effort. 
Second, information avoidance is intentional, so it's an active effort to prevent oneself from learning information. We talked about how information avoidance can be permanent or temporary, so it can be a decision to never learn information, or it can be the decision to hold off on learning something, perhaps until you have resources to cope with it, um, or feel like you're equipped to handle the information. And then finally, we discussed this spectrum of personal relevance to the information. So when information is extremely relevant and personal, a person might avoid that information because they feel like it's really scary and it's going to affect them a lot. If it's less relevant, maybe they're avoiding the information because they don't think it's going to affect them. So although this definition is pretty straightforward, what counts and what doesn't count is really important for people who are designing studies and even folks who are just reading and interpreting the findings to see what the researchers or what the scholars are counting as avoidance. Hopefully that answers your question more about these different things that distinguish information avoidance. Yeah, it does. And I want to go over some of them. We are living in the information age. We have information basically being thrown at us uh, through multiple channels. The way we acquire information is very different from uh, other generations, right? So let's talk about the contemporary phenomenon of news and social media algorithms. Do you think they contribute to people's tendency to avoid information? I think this is a great topic to talk about. So information avoidance has been occurring for a long time. So it's not simply just our social media bubbles, but people are likely getting more used to encountering information that's consistent with their worldview. Every time they go on social media, these algorithms are great at telling us exactly what we want to hear. And this phenomena of seeking out information that's consistent with your worldview is called selective exposure. So it's distinct from information avoidance, but there's some really cool selective exposure research for anyone who wants to further dive into that. But from an information avoidance perspective, people might just ignore information when it's inconsistent with their worldview. I actually had the opportunity to collect some qualitative data from students in our lab as um, part of pilot data for my dissertation. And a few students said, you know, I will avoid information on social media, especially when I think it's wrong. Um, but also with contemporary news and social media, people are encountering much more information than they really ever have before. And so people may feel this sense of information overload and research has found that greater information overload is associated with greater information avoidance, but the social media and constant news cycles relatively new. So there's plenty of space out there for research on how this is directly associated with information avoidance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So what uh, I hear you saying is yes, maybe, uh, social me media has a role, but this is not the first time that this phenomena existed. Before social media, people were still avoiding information, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this brings me back to your paper because uh, you folks did a really good job about coming up with a framework, a cognitive framework, explaining uh, the mechanism of information avoidance. Can we talk about that a little bit? Uh, what is your framework explaining information avoidance? Yeah, I would be happy to. So 
uh, the framework in the paper basically just posits three overarching factors that influence the extent to which a person is likely going to avoid information. So these three overarching factors are beliefs about the information. So this is a person's belief about the actual content of the information, maybe how they think the information is going to make them feel, or how scary it might be, or how useful it might be. The second overarching factor is beliefs about oneself. So this is a person's belief about their ability to deal with threatening information. This might include coping resources or self-efficacy, or even a person's ability to interpret possibly complicated information. And then the final factor or the final component are these social and situational influences. So this includes how a person's environment might shape their desire to avoid information. Maybe it's social norms and what's going on in someone's culture or potential effects from organizations like their employers or the government when they learn that information. And we also talk a little bit about how, although we grouped these factors, we put them in these categories, it's really hard to group these into categories. There's a lot of overlap between the factors and all these antecedents likely influence one another. So for example, the extent to which a person believes that they can cope with the information might then influence how threatening they think the information is. So I wouldn't necessarily call these distinct, and there's a lot of overlap between these different groupings, but ultimately these three are going to then influence a person's motivation or a person's then decision to seek or avoid information. Yeah, one of the things uh, I like uh, about your framework, and I mean, right now your explanation is that you make a distinction between two different belief systems, right? Uh, one is when we interact with information, we have some beliefs about the information and also we have beliefs about uh, ourselves. Can you talk a little bit more about that distinction for our listeners? Uh, how do they interact and how they are different from each other? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so generally these information beliefs are just when a person anticipates what's going to be part of the content of the information. So let's say we're in a medical setting, we're at the doctor's office, and our doctor says, do you wanna know your test result for this? Even without knowing the information, a person probably has a guess as to, oh, this is probably going to be bad, or this is going to be really scary, or they might think this is gonna be great and make me feel good about myself. So that, anticipating what is in the content of the information or what's going to happen in the content is the belief about the information. The beliefs about yourself is how mainly you think you can handle the information or how you personally think you can respond to the information. You know, you're showing up to the doctors and maybe you have your partner next to you or someone who's a really strong advocate or supporter of you. You might feel like, yes, I got this. I can handle it. This person next to me is going to help me. So these two factors are what you think is going to be in the message itself or in part of the information. And the second part is your ability to then receive that. And there are a lot of different examples. So in my dissertation right now, I'm exploring uh, information avoidance in everyday life and a lot of different domains that people might avoid information. And so some of those domains include health and medical information, um, but also um, we work with a lot of students, and so another context in which people may avoid information from a student's perspective is about their grades. 
or if you're you know working for a company you might not want to know how your performance review went so it could also be different evaluative contexts and another domain is people and their finances or their money and how they want to know information about that so there's been some research about how people don't necessarily want to know how their stock portfolio is doing when the overall stock market is down. So those are some really broad domains. Other ones, just to rattle off a few, include appearance. Sometimes people don't want to know what other people think of their appearance. They might not want to know how their partner is perceiving them or their partner's you know, previous relationship history. So a variety of factors, things that might affect you personally, things that are really personally relevant, might be domains in which people are choosing to avoid information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, as a follow-up question, I want to ask you why, I mean, you are writing a dissertation about this, so you care about this topic. Why do you think it is important to study information avoidance? Yeah, that's a great question. Like you said right at the beginning, we are in an information-rich period of time. We're encountering more information than ever before. And the information that people are encountering have these really big global consequences. They're seeing information about climate change, um, about stuff that's happening in the US and abroad. And from the US perspective, there's also a lot of polarization. And so it's really important to understand first how people are either selectively attending to or are outright avoiding information that they disagree with. And then it's important then to understand how people are processing information as they learn it. So another thing that our, our lab does is we look at how people engage in defensive information processing. So once they do learn information, are they downplaying the risk of the disease? Are they saying that something isn't as bad as it actually is? So I think future research on avoiding information is really important, but also then how we're taking that information and processing it. So how are people interacting with new information as they're encountering it, especially with how much information is out there and how much we have access to. So I just love reading what other people are writing and the other work that people are doing as well. So it's just a cool space to be in right now. Yeah, it is a really interesting topic because as we have been saying, we are all guilty of it uh, time to time, right? Um, especially in this country, there's a lot of polarization, which brings me to my next question about the universality of your framework. Do you think your framework is applicable to all cultures? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think so a lot of the information avoidance research has been conducted in the United States and, and less research has been done in other places. So, but to speculate, I would say that social and societal influence might be the element that most differs across cultures. So maybe in some places there are social norms about how much information you should avoid or seek, or maybe there are structures in place to support people when they encounter really scary health information, for example. So maybe a person who, I'm speculating on this, but maybe a person who lives in a country with free universal health care is going to feel like they can cope with scary health information better than someone who lives in a place where you have to pay a lot of money to treat a potential disease 
So maybe financially, the best thing to do is not learn that you have that disease so you don't feel obligated to pay all of this money. Um, so these are some differences. But I think that this framework and information avoidance research in general would need to extend to other cultures, be tested in, in other places before we know what cultural differences exist. Um, so I wouldn't be ready to say that, yes, this is universally applicable to all different cultures, um, especially with how people are approaching and interpreting the information, but then also what social structures are in place that are either going to facilitate the seeking of information, of, of information or even encouraging people to not learn information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see uh, which direction uh, you go with your research. What are you thinking about your next steps for you to study this topic? I'm really excited about some next steps. and I've spent some time thinking about them recently. One step that I'm really excited about pursuing next is exploring the outcomes of information avoidance. Um, I think the prevailing assumption is that for the most part, information avoidance is bad and people should learn information. But this hasn't been tested very often. Um, participants saying, you know, they wanted to avoid information because it would help them, you know, protect against bad feelings or promote these positive feelings. But a next step might be to test if this is actually the case. And I would also be interested in knowing whether temporary avoidance can actually be adaptive and beneficial, specifically when a person doesn't have coping resources to deal with threatening information. So exploring these outcomes of information avoidance and seeing are there instances in which it's actually positive to stop learning information, avoid it even temporarily waiting until you have the ability to cope with it, and then returning to the information when you can safely learn it, when you feel like you can do something about it. I think that is an interesting, for me at least, next step. I'm also currently working on, in my dissertation, understanding the temporal dynamics of information avoidance. So exploring how affective and cognitive and behavioral factors are all correlated day to day with information avoidance decisions over a two-week period of time. So on days in which people are experiencing more affect, are they also avoiding information? Um, and how does that affect the following day's behavior, for example? So I'm really excited to dive into these data in the next couple of weeks to explore some of these findings. And hopefully within a year or two, they're out there for everyone to also see. But that's something that I'm really excited about doing in the next couple months for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. And yeah, please let us know when you know more about your data. Um, I liked everything you said about the directions that you want to take. I am personally interested in this idea of postponing uh, the processing of information, right? Maybe it's a safety issue, emotional safety thing. So if we can figure out the mechanisms uh, giving rise to it, maybe we can create the right uh, spaces for people to process information. Yeah, especially with knowing that, you know, when a person learns information that they're not 
ready to handle, sometimes the response they go to is just immediately downplaying it and protecting them, their self-image and just saying, nope, that could never happen to me or that, do, you know, that doesn't sound like me at all. But if people are delaying learning that information, like you said, until they're ready to handle it, maybe instead of defensively responding, they're going about changing their behavior. Yeah. Let us know, please, when you have more information about uh, your research. Jeremy, uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think that understanding how people are engaging with information is really important work right now. And I'd encourage other people to think about how people might be avoiding your message or what's encouraging them to avoid your messages is really important when we're disseminating um, these messages or telling people information. Um, But I'm also just really excited about what work is happening in the field right now. And if you haven't had a chance to read anything about information avoidance or explore it, I'd encourage people to take a look at it. I also had really excellent reviewers for this paper. Um, so I just want to quickly shout out that the review process for me was was really great. They provided outstanding feedback and were really kind. So thank you to them. Finally, I'm so grateful to my graduate advisor and co-author on this paper, Dr. Jennifer Tabor. She's been such a great mentor, and I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to work with her and look forward to many more years of collaboration. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm very pleased to hear that you had a positive review process. There is change in the field uh, going uh, into that direction. And we, in fact, have one podcast episode about how APS is taking the lead in these more positive uh, review processes. I am very happy to hear that. Thank you again, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. This is Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with APS, and I have been speaking to Jeremy Faust from Kent State University. If you want to know more about this research, visit psychologicalscience.org. Discover the power of digital content with Macmillan Learning Psychology. At Macmillan Learning, we understand that content is crucial, especially in the digital age. That's why we've created Achieve, a cutting-edge platform that takes interactive teaching and learning to the next level. Achieve offers a wide range of online course content, from interactive ebooks to innovative assessments, engaging videos and activities, as well as helpful instructor resources. Our platform makes it easy for you to access what you need and use what you want, all in one place. Ready to see it for yourself? Take an introductory tour of Achieve today at macmillanlearning.com slash under the cortex. Macmillan's Achieve for Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.